Good evening. It's good to see you all this evening. Very glad to be with you. It's that time again. We're here again. Surely it's the, uh, the best time of the week apart from the Sundays when we're here together. When God's people are with God's people and opening God's Word, that surely will be a good occasion. As you know, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. And this book is rich. Milked it a little bit too long last week. Hopefully we'll be a little bit more uh, prompt and punctual with the, the things we say uh, this week. But before we uh, enter into our study, let's go to God in prayer. Great God and eternal Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of the Israelites. And now our God. And we give you the praise that you deserve. We seek to honor you with our pure hearts and pure lives, and then also with the worship that you deserve. And Father, on this occasion we intend to open your word, and to read it, and to gain our understanding. At this time we pray for wisdom, that we understand your word, and see how it needs to change and mold our lives. Father, you are the God that keeps his promises. You did this with your people of old. We have firm assurance and confidence that you will keep your promises to us. Encourage us in this knowledge, Father, that when we serve you, that you will bless us. Encourage us in the knowledge that we have a victory over sin and over Satan, that we overcome him by the blood of your Savior, the one you provided to be um, the Savior of all mankind. Help us to put our faith and trust in him and to walk in his ways uh, every day of our lives. We pray that you be with us. We need your help. We need your guidance and protection. We know that without you, all that we intend or attempt to do will be futile. Father, be honored by uh, this assembly tonight and by your people who seek to please you. We ask you for, to forgive us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, be turning to Nehemiah chapter 6. And that will be in the, uh, the beginning of the text for this evening. By way of review, let's remember what we've seen so far in the book of Nehemiah. It's been full, and we're only uh, about, about halfway through. In chapter 1, the people of God and the city of God are in distress, you remember. And Nehemiah gets the report, and this is heavy. This is heavy to him, because he is a godly man, and he seeks the welfare of God's people. And so, he goes to God in prayer, and that's what we see recorded in chapter 1. Well, in chapter 2, he, get, he gains favor with the king. Well, he had prayed to God, and the good hand of the Lord is on him, and he has favor with the king, and the king sends him and says, yes, go rebuild the city. But better still, he gains favor with the people, and the people have a mind working, they, they put their hands to the work, they agree, yes, this needs to be done, and they go to it. 
what a uh, beautiful thing to see. And, and chapter 3 then records and says, okay, these are the ones that built the wall. And we said last week, God intends them to have, um, as long as this world lasts, to have a claim for what they did uh, in, in serving Him. But in chapter 4, wherever God's work is being done, the enemies will come. The adversaries will come and try to cause problems. And as you know, that's what happened. And so, so what do the people of God do? Do they, do they cease from the work? Are they discouraged or disheartened? Just terrified of the adversaries? Well, let's hope not. No, these, these were not. But things changed. When there's danger, then they're carrying the sword at all times. As we remember, that held some lessons for us. And then in chapter 5, a little bit of, you know, we had the, the problems from outside and the enemies outside. Well, now in chapter 5, the, there are problems within. And the children of Israel are not treating each other the way they should. And they're, uh, a, a number of them are oppressed and, you know, unable to even really ride out and survive in the famine. And they cry out to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knows that the Lord's ways are such that they should not oppress their brethren. And he, um, he rebukes them and helps them correct that. And to the people's credit, they, they correct that and they go along with it. And so a lot of really encouraging things so far in the book of Nehemiah. We, we regularly see these great men of faith. And they're made, they are absolutely strong. They're models in their character, in their determination, in their perseverance, in their faith. But so often the people of God come along pretty reluctantly. And maybe they'll go along with Josiah for a while. But as soon as Josiah goes away, what happens? And they'll go along with these other great men. And as soon as Joshua dies, then the next generation, they're not serving the Lord anymore. And, and even when they were, it seemed like it was fairly reluctant. But how encouraging it is to see God's people and like, and like eager to be doing the work. Um, and so, so what an encouraging book. Now, we see problems are going to come to Nehemiah's door, especially in chapter 6. And that's how it leads off from the very first verse. Um, so we read in Nehemiah 6, verse 1, Now it came about that when it was reported to Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arabs, see, the adversaries hear about all the work that's being done. And to the rest of our enemies, you remember, they've been accumulating enemies. <laughs> it seems like the more work they do and the more progress they make, the more enemies they have. And so it will be with us. So the news is heard. The rest of the enemies have heard that I have rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, that Samballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Chepharim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So it seems that even right off the bat, even with this first message, that Nehemiah has the sort of hint that this is not all above board. Um, but you notice what has been going on with the enemies. They've tried a number of things to get the people to be discouraged and to quit the work. 
Well, it hasn't worked. But everybody knows you cut off the head of the snake, you know, the snake dies. And so um, their plans are becoming more sinister. They can't get the people to quit, so they say, okay, well, let's, let's target their leader. Surely that will um, accomplish what we intend. Um, so some sinister plans are brewing. Now I have a question. So we are the, we're the servants of God today. We're doing the kind of things that God wants. What will, we, what will be our response if we realize that we're the target of an attack? We have death threats or something of this nature made toward us. Is that outside the realm of possibility? Let's have our eyes open to the idea that God's people will suffer um, these kinds of things. In fact, as you recall, this will be a little bit of review. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let's not be um, surprised when these kinds of things come our way. Now, how are we going to respond? Well, um, I suggest that Nehemiah is a very good example for what to do in the face of um, the danger and uh, the threat of attack. Um, but we've said all along that where you find God's people doing God's work, you'll also find adversaries. And so we shouldn't be disheartened or discouraged by that. Um, Paul puts it in an interesting way. I always thought it was strange. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, A wide door for effective service um, has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So he doesn't say there's a wide door, but there are many adversaries. You would think, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. But the problem is there are many adversaries, as though that's a, an unusual thing. No, absolutely not. It is to be expected. They, these things go hand in hand, and it has always been that way. But Paul also says that all those threats and all those plots and the riots and the, the ones that literally chased him from city to city, he also says, out of all of these things, the Lord rescued. And so let that be um, the, the thing we take comfort in, and what we rely on is the, the firm assurance that God will take care of His people. After all, we remind ourselves of 1 Peter 3 that we spoke about last week. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And so the, the, here's a case in point of a man who is zealous for what is good, is he alarmed? Is he frightened by the enemies? And um, is there any chance that this man is going to be distracted? Well, let's see what's going on here and see what may happen. In verse 3, he replies, So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He calls what he's doing a great work. And I just want to point out, when he uses that word great, I don't think he's using it in a self-congratulatory way, um, trying to talk about how grand or honorable or noble the work is so much. As he is saying, that it, just speaking about the scale of it, 
He's talking about um, a very big task that he's taking on. And so he's not telling them, listen, come on, I'm too important a figure to come meet with you. That's not what's being said here. Um, Nehemiah's uh, humility that he displays on a number of occasions, um, I think, uh, makes that clear. Rather, what he's saying, and this should be probably familiar to all of us, what he's saying is, I can't get away from work. I'm too busy. I'm too busy with work. In terms of a lesson for us, may we ever be so busy with God's work that when people are trying to pull us away, distract us by this, intimidate us in this way, this, like, I don't, I don't even have time for that. I'm too busy. I have, I'm too focused on the work of art. And that's what he shows. So he shows a number of things in his response, a couple things at least. He shows prudence. He, he doesn't actually even reveal that he knows of their plot. He kind of ignores that in his reply entirely. So he shows prudence. Um, there's no, no sense in um, escalating things. And he shows, but most more importantly, in, in terms of the lesson for us especially, he shows a focus. He does not intend to let these enemies distract him from the work that needs to be done. Now, let's think about this. Now, Satan would love for us to quit the work that we're doing. But he doesn't actually need us to quit entirely and to and throw up our hands and say, I'm done with this. He doesn't actually need that if he can distract us. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce the same effect. And he'll try a number of things to prevent God's people from carrying out God's purpose. And that's been clear from the very beginning. He is the adversary. He's the, the original and the biggest and the best. He will always be standing um, against uh, God's work. So he'll try a number of things to do that. But he'll try a host of distractions for us. And we need to watch out. We need to be on the guard and realize, oh, I see what's really going on here. I'm trying. I'm, he's expecting me to get distracted by this and be pulled away from the good work. Um, so no, Satan, no, all you adversaries. I'm doing a great work. I want to be serving the Lord. There's a lot to do. There's um, too much to take on. And I can't be distracted by these things. So there's a focus on the work. This reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2. No servant, no, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who listed him as soldier. He doesn't have time for those things. He's actively um, busy in the service. And in verse 4, um, they, they, think, they really think that this plan is going to work. They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Verse 5, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner, a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. Now, the tactic is going to change just ever so slightly um, here in verse 5 and, and beyond. There's a new tactic where we can't um, kill him uh, surreptitiously and, and, and trick him into a, um, an ambush. So, what else can we do? What about blackmail? 
Oh yes, that's, uh, that's what they're going to try. And so here's the letter they're writing and, and what they're trying to leverage against Nehemiah. And it was written this. It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu, that's probably um, Geshem still, Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall. That's, we know why you're rebuilding the wall. Everybody knows, and everybody's saying it. You're planning to rebel. Well, rebellion was dealt with very severely by the ancient kings. We know this. Um, and the adversaries had actually been kind of slandering them from the very beginning. Let me remind you of chapter 2, verse 19. Right after the people put their hands to the work, the adversaries notice, and in verse 19, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, these familiar ones, mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? He said then, and we'll say now again, um, you don't want to be found rebelling against the king. So what is there to be done? Well, um, they kind of hinted at the threat back in chapter 2, but now they're putting a finer point to this weapon uh, in chapter 6. Um, and they're saying, uh, you'll notice in... Uh, verse 7 and 8, that they're going to report it. And so, there at the end of verse 6, we hear you're going to be their king, according to these reports, and you've appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, so you're assembling all of your people for your kingdom, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. They say, unless you come down, see... Um, they say, now, take, so come now, take counsel, let's, let's take counsel together. Now you want to talk? Now are you ready to talk? We have, we're going to um, threaten you with that. Um, and so that's what, that's what they're going to try. So what is, what is Nehemiah's response? Well, he sent a message to him saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your mind. For all of them were thinking, or were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. Uh, not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. There's another one of Nehemiah's short little um, prayers to God. So, the is it ever the case that the adversaries will attempt to make the people of God look bad? doesn't matter if the report is true or false. Will these things be done? Well, certainly. And this is, we're no stranger um, to the warnings, and not really the warnings, but the, just the, yeah, the warnings that these things will happen. You remember, even from the very beginning of Jesus' teachings, in the Beatitudes, he says, you're going to be persecuted, all these things. And on top of that, um, they're going to insult you, and they're going to say all of these things about you. Falsely, we know these things. But um, in his Beatitudes, he says, you are blessed. Blessed are you when people uh, insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. Um, and you're in good company, you remember. Uh, they were persecuting the one from the very, uh, from the very beginning. Um, and so Nehemiah didn't enter into fully having to... 
um, answer all of these challenges. He says, look, these, these things are not true. You know they're not true. You, this, is, this is your invention. It reminds me of, of the proverb. It says, answer, answer a fool according to his folly. Well, don't answer a fool according to his folly, but then do answer a fool according to his folly in the next verse. Um, he said, he gives them uh, probably the best possible answer. So that's, that's two different ways they've attempted just in this short period to, uh, to, to bring him down. Um, just to, this, they're going to all, all lengths to prevent these, this work and discourage and harass. But in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10, we come to probably the most uh, crafty or the most devious part uh, because it comes in a way you might not expect. Um, so Nehemiah says, just as a matter of course, he says, nothing unusual about it. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehedabah, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. Um, and I guess we read on through verse 11 and 12. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballah had hired him. So you come to this one, a, a person confined at home. I'm not sure for what reason that might have been. But... Surely, if anybody is going to be the innocent party um, and, and completely free of any um, guile, it's this one, right? Surely, surely, surely. No reason to suspect him. Confined at home. And furthermore, by, by all accounts, he's probably a prophet. First of all, verse 12, Nehemiah says, okay, I realize that God had not actually sent him, indicating that Maybe the words the prophet was uh, speaking were under the pretense of being a message from God. And, and then secondly, he says that he had uttered this prophecy against me. So probably a prophet and one that's stuck at home. So of all people, probably not the one you would think. This is the one that's going to uh, trip me up or ambush me. Um, but how many warnings do we have about false prophets? False prophets arising among the people. What about the old prophet and the young prophet? Can I go home? No, stay with me. No, and, and then, you know, but he listened to him to his own peril. And so, but, but the, the, point of the, the point of the matter is that Nehemiah knows the law. Nehemiah knows that no one is to enter the holy place except for the priest. And his predicament doesn't change that. Um, you remember that Adonijah, remember back in 1 Kings um, chapter 1, I believe it is, Adonijah was not so noble. When he was running away for his life, he ran straight in and grabbed the horns of the altar. Uh, but Nehemiah is not this way. We said, um, starting two weeks ago, that the people of God, and this will prove to be a lesson here as well, the people of God avoid what gives the enemies an occasion to speak against them. So, verse 13 reveals the whole um, driver of this plot. 
Verse 13, he was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly. That means act, um, you know, go here into the temple to, to, to flee. Act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. So they can't stop me. They can't ambush me. That, that's not Nehemiah's bragging. I'm just saying, here are the things they're trying. Can't be stopped. Can't be distracted. Can't be discouraged. It won't be blackmailed into it. So let's see if we can at least undermine his credibility um, so we can speak against them. But this reminds us of the lessons that we were seeing and I want to return to um, from two weeks ago. <clears throat> Children of God, young men, young women, all of these, um, all these ones need to be beyond reproach so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Um, 2 Peter 2, I mean 1 Peter 2 again. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Um, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's nothing bad to be said. Our behavior is excellent. This needs to be what we're um, striving for. Titus, um, 1 Timothy 5, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And so Nehemiah is being very careful um, to avoid that. Um, and here's another one of his statements to, uh, Leland pointed out that he does this on a number of occasions. Remember me, verse 14. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Samballot, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. Take note of their threats, and I will leave that in your hands. I will trust in you. So he is, um, he is model, model in his character for us. Now, verse 15. Um, what we've been pushing toward for um, the whole beginning of the book. Let's rebuild this wall. Let's make Jerusalem so it's no longer a reproach. So that we're no longer... Um, in danger of attack. And what we see is in verse 15. So the wall was completed, completed on the 25th of the month Elo in 52 days. Well, that's just stunning. But it's not surprising. And here's why. It's what we've been seeing all along. In chapter 2, verse 18, from the very get-go, the, the people put their hands to the work. People had a they said, let us arise and build, and they did it. And then in chapter 4, it reveals something about the collective spirit. Chapter 3 and 4, let's say. But in chapter 4, it said, for the people had a mind to work. And we pointed out how united they were in their efforts. And um, in terms of the application for us and the reminder for us, there is, um, this is what can be accomplished when the people of God are united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Now, coming to verse 16, as we come to the close of chapter 6, and it came about when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Matthew 5, verse 16, what does it say? Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works, and glorify your fathers in he Father in heaven. They know what this is about. They know that God is behind um, these things. If you want to summarize the events thus far in Nehemiah, it's what we said before. 
It's Psalm 1. Here's a man who's not taking counsel with the ungodly. He's not in any way going to associate with the wicked. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night, and he shows it. Because on every occasion, the scripture is coming to his lips. And the way he encourages other people, and the way he trusts God, and the way he conducts himself. And he will be like a tree. He's become like a tree, firmly planted by rivers of water. He's not swayed by these by all these troubles. It brings forth fruit. Look, he's leading these people to complete the great work. Brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf will not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And then, the flip side of that is that the ungodly are not so. And these enemies are are the chaff which the wind drives away. They're nothing. Why are we intimidated? Why are we frightened by them? This is the story of Psalm 1 that kind of summarizes what we see um, in the book of Nehemiah. Now, in verses 17 through 19, you see that um, these adversaries actually have ties with the people of God. And, um, and this could be a source of distraction for anybody who could easily be distracted. But uh, Nehemiah is not, not distracted and not shaken. Verse 17, also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Why are they associating with this man? For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah. See, there was a marriage there. And then in verse 19, moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. So that's kind of underhanded there, and um, kind of funny, just... Speaking up, hey, just in a, in a voice loud enough for Nehemiah to notice, don't you know those good things Tobiah is doing? What is the purpose here? And why on earth would you associate with such a one? Um, but Tobiah has a standing, and anyone who has standing is likely to use that influence um, and then do what he did here in verse 19, send letters to frighten me. Nehemiah is not distracted, not shaken. We need to move on to chapter 7. Um, what we see here is the people of God returning to their places. And we'll talk about the significance of this here in just a moment. Um, it came about when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed that I put Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Who do you put in charge of the well-being of God's people. You put in charge a man who fears God. And this is why we were given uh, in the New Testament elders as shepherds in every local group. And you remember there in Acts chapter 20, they're to be on guard for yourselves and for the flock that is among you. And the kind of character they have is such that they fear God and they care about the well-being of His people. Um, And then... Um, In Hebrews chapter 13, therefore, the exhortation for us is, Hebrews 13 verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable um, for you. So the elders must be doing their part. But in chapter 3, each one of us must be on guard for our own house. So notice the wisdom here in verse 3. Then I said to them, 
Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. So there's no attack by night. And while they're standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Okay? Securely sealed and the enemy cannot get in. Also appoint guards for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his, at his post and each in front of his own house. The, I, let me just suggest that the elders will do their part insofar as they can. But if we are the ones that are opening the door to the enemy, and the enemy is walking um, right into our own home, or we're letting him, letting him down the rope, and he's getting in um, through whatever means, then the work of the elders will be undermined, and the people of God cannot be safe. So um, they would be stationed as well um, near their own houses. Um, and verse 4 says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Well, um, they will address that um, kind of situation uh, later. But in verse uh, 5 through 7, we start seeing uh, a very powerful message um, when we read about the people that are returning. What this serves to show for us is that God is faithful to His covenant, he is faithful and true to his promises. And this is where we have to return um, one more time to Deuteronomy chapter 30. <clears throat> because this the Deuteronomy 30 is one of those places, these promises are made by God on a, on a number of occasions. But this one puts it so well, and it tells the story of the return in advance. He says, I'll tell you everything that's going to happen, and I will bring it about. Um, so he says in Deuteronomy 30, this was just before Israel entered Canaan. And he's proclaimed that there are curses, and they will be carried off into captivity if they are not faithful to the Lord. And he speaks about it as if it's an eventuality. And um, unfortunately, that turns out to be the case uh, so often. But um, the, the uplifting hope uh, in chapter 30 is this. So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And he makes it dramatic by saying in verse 4, If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Um, and so that's the first part of this promise, and we're seeing all of this coming about. The people are seeking the Lord again. They want to do the will of the Lord. They're returning to the Lord, and the Lord brings them back to the land, and He's establishing them there. He's causing them uh, to prosper. And in verse 8, we'll read eight, verses 8 through 10 as well, and see if you can hear this being carried out, these words being carried out in the story of Nehemiah. 
And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Well, let's put that on pause for chapter 8 especially. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord, this is conditional. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And so the Lord is bringing them back. He's causing them to begin to prosper. And we'll see this carried out. We needed to set the stage with this um, to see that the Lord keeps his promises to bring his people back. And what you see in verses 8 through verse 38, as I return to this, the people are returning to their cities. You see Bethlehem, Anathoth, Kiriath-Jerim, Ramon, uh, Giba, Mitchmash, you find all sorts of people there. That's a joke. It's Mitchmash. Um, no, so, sorry. Did, um, God is bringing them back to their cities. Did he forget the people from Bethel? Did he leave them in captivity? No! He brought back the people of Bethel, the people of Ai, the people of Jericho. He didn't leave any of them forgotten. From all the places where they had been scattered, he brought them back. And it, is, it tells us right where they settled. They came right back to their places. And so, the Lord is faithful to His promises. In verse 39, we see that the priests um, are now returning. The priests, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, the sons of Emmer, the sons of Pasher, the sons of Harim. There's a lesson in this. When God establishes a perpetual, remember He used that word? Everlasting priesthood, he will preserve it. Exodus 40, verse 15 says, he's talking about Aaron and his sons. You shall anoint them uh, that they may minister as priests to me. And their anointing will qualify them for a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. And the Lord um, is going to bring this about. Now, what do we have when we come to the New Testament? Well, there's a priesthood established. There's an everlasting, perpetual priesthood established. You, you know all the statements in the book of Hebrews. Actually, um, starting even back in the Psalms, but culminating and being pulled together so powerfully in Hebrews. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has established this priesthood, and it will always stand and remain till the end of time. <clears throat> So in verse uh, 43 through 45, you have also the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers. They are returning. He's bringing them back. Verse 46, the temple servants. They are down through verse um, 60. So all of these are coming back. But in um, verse 61, you have a problem. There are ones here with an untraceable ancestry. Um, so they've come back, but they could not, verse 61, they could not show their father's houses or their descendants whether they were of Israel. And it's these ones, the sons of Deliah, Tobiah, Dakota, and others. Um, so these searched, verse 64, among their ancestral registry, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. So why are they excluded from the priesthood? Well, it's because these people are seeking the blessings of the Lord. And the blessings of the Lord come to those who are 
Remember the words of Deuteronomy? Careful to do according to all that the Lord your God is commanding you to do. And that's what they're doing. They're being uh, careful. And that's part of what we just read in Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 30. Um, <clears throat> so they are returning. And I guess this is as good a place as any uh, to notice the great illustration uh, of Nehemiah 7. God records this return. This is what I want you to take from chapter 7, if nothing else. God records this return because he wants to show us a picture of what his new covenant and what his new kingdom will be like when he establishes it with Christ and establishes it in you, in all of you, in all of us. And it's foretold in Ezekiel 37. It, it sounds almost exactly like it's talking about this return, but it cannot be speaking of this return um, on its own. The fulfillment goes to something much, much greater than this. And it's found in Ezekiel chapter 37, among other places, but especially here, uh, there in verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. He's speaking of this time. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave, my, gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. You're already starting to see that it's speaking of a time when the people go back. They return to the land. He's bringing them back to the land. But this is speaking of something greater. David, they have no king. David's no longer around, and no one from his line is. Not until Christ comes. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will, I will place them. I will multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. Emmanuel, God with us. He makes his temple in us. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The people have returned to the land, and it's by God's hand. And he did this, and he records it to show us what his new covenant um, would be like. Verse 66, chapter 7. God said a remnant will return. He was not stingy in bringing home his people. A remnant doesn't sound like very much. If you're a seamstress, a remnant of the garment is a little cut off right here. Um, but if you'll notice in verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,000 some, and male and female singers, speaks of horses and mules and camels and donkeys. There, they've come home. And God was not stingy in bringing them home. Verse 70 through verse 72, quite a handsome gift you see here. Some of the father's households gave to the work. Um, the governor gave to the treasury. A thousand gold drachmas, 50 basins, um, 530 priest garments. The father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas. So, uh, and, and so on. Quite a, quite a handsome thing. But then, the if, if we had missed it anywhere else, you, you'll see it here in verse 73. The people have come home. <clears throat> the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, 
Some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. We hurry along quickly to chapter 8. And a glorious, grand sight we see because the people gather as one man at the square in front of the water gate to hear the word of God. And so in verse 1, they ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law, which the Lord had given to Moses, or given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate. Now listen to this. From early morning, that's literally from light. So they were up early. From early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the words of the law. Notice two things. They were present and they were attentive. They were there from the very first thing in the morning. No late risers here. They, this was very important. And they all, all of them wanted to be together to hear the words of the law. So they were present and they were attentive there at the end of verse 3. For hours on end, glad, eager to hear it and attentive to the word of the law. They learned a lesson that I think um, God intended his people to learn all along. And most of them didn't get it. They, they didn't treasure and they didn't respect and they, didn't, they weren't attentive to the words of the law. But in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying... These things are not a waste of your time. It says, for it is not an idle word for you. This is not a waste of time. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land. What a beautiful thing to see God's people realizing that they depend on the word of God. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. We can't say anything more about that right now as we hurry along. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he read from it. Come down to verse 7. We, um, we started our study by reading these words to say, look, how do we study God's Word? When, we have, when we're reading it, and we have someone standing here, and lots of people gathered around, how are we going to hear the Word of the Lord? And it goes like this. In verse 7, Ezra stands up along with these Levites, and they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And so we would do well if in our reading and study of Scripture we read from the book. We give the sense of the words that are being said, and then we explain or translate so that the word is understood. And may we all have the attitude of Ezra, who set his heart. You remember John's study? Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of God, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And it's paying its, uh, paying its fruit. Now the people are weeping when they hear the words of the Lord. Um... But God intends His Word to bring joy. And that's why in verse 9 you see that the people are told, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn 
or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Weeping probably for joy over something that was lost. Weeping probably um, for, for fear of having broken the law of God and broken it, not kept all his commandments. And they will begin to make those restorations because they've had a, a, a changed heart, a heart that has truly listened to God's word and eager to do it. Um, verse 12 says there's joy in understanding the word. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words that had been made known to them. Let us rejoice when we read God's word and understand what is being said. We hurry along to notice that in verse 13, down through verse 18, the Feast of Booths is restored. What's going on here? It hadn't been observed since the days of Joshua, verse 17. And the entire assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And coupled with that, they um, spent their time in worthwhile activities. What did they do? Verse 18, And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. They are determined now to follow the word of God. I can think of nothing more uplifting than to see the people of God doing what God intends. May we be like these ones. Ken Duncan will have an invitation for us.